entered the Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Pietri. Hey, this is going to be an exciting week for us here at the Paracast because we're completing nine months of broadcasting every single week. Nine months on the Paracast. And we've got some great guests today, not necessarily UFO-related. We do talk about other subjects. First off, you'll hear what we consider a realistic discussion of crop circles and related mysteries with Nancy Talbert from the BLT research team, UFOs, some other kind of life form, or just people playing pranks. We'll try to decide where the truth may lie. Later on in the show, we'll explore Martian mysteries, such as the face on Mars, pyramids, and other stuff. Do they truly represent evidence of extraterrestrial artifacts? Well, we're going to talk with Mac Tonys, author of After the Martian Apocalypse, about these subjects, all coming up this week on the Paracast. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. This is UFO Magazine, and I'm Bill Burns, the publisher, and here's an offer for your listeners. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-UFO-MAGA, or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com, and they can also call one 888 U-F-O-M-A-G-A, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen next. Nancy, you head up an organization called BLT Research Team. And uh, you folks have been studying crop circles for a number of years. I'm curious to know how you got involved in this field. What was your background in this? Academically, I had worked as a research analyst at the University of Maryland years ago and then at Harvard in the Department of Anthropology and was familiar with basic scientific protocols, but uh, I'm not a scientist myself. I didn't uh, go on in science. And it was, I think, back in, oh, about 1990, I first uh, became aware of the crop circle phenomenon from a magazine cover. I went down to the kiosk in Harvard Square to get some uh, reading material one night, and there was a photograph, several photographs, actually, uh, of crop circles on the cover of a British magazine. I'd never heard of them and had no idea what they were, but 
found the designs kind of compelling. You know, what the hell is that? So I bought that along with several other things. And after reading the article uh, about the, because well, there was an article also uh, telling about this phenomenon in England, and decided that I needed to go to check it out. I wanted to find out firsthand. Mm-hmm. And so I went to England uh, as soon as I could. I think it was the next summer. And by the time I'd gotten over there, I had heard a little bit more about it. When I got to England, I heard about a, a, a biophysicist in Michigan who had already begun to examine plants, and I thought that was kind of interesting, and I heard about these elongated nodes. And so I went into several of these crop circles and started to look at the plants very carefully and immediately noticed a couple of things that I had heard about uh, in the plants in a couple of these that I went into. thought that was kind of interesting. Also heard just from various people I met in England that there were all sorts of ideas about how these things occurred. Some people were talking about UFOs making crop circles, and I was personally absolutely positive that that was not the answer. I was Mm -hmm. quite adamant that, nope, UFOs had nothing to do with this. And I was basing that simply on an experience I had when I was a kid where I did have an encounter with a UFO in daytime with a bunch of other people where this thing just came right down in a field very near where we were playing ball and apparently paralyzed us because none of us could move for a period of time and we couldn't speak. And this thing, whatever, I had never heard of UFOs at that time. I thought it was a living something. I was absolutely convinced it was a conscious, alert, aware that it had an agenda of some kind relative to the children, you know, myself included. And furthermore, had no idea what the agenda was. And since I was paralyzed, I didn't like it very much. Uh, How old were you at this point? I think, I'm never, I'm not positive anymore, but I was probably, I was either 13 or 14 Hmm. that summer. And this is back in the 50s. It was a very unpleasant encounter in the sense that I was positive that this thing was conscious and doing something didn't have any idea what it might be doing, but because we were paralyzed, because we couldn't yell, we couldn't run, we couldn't do anything, and I have such a clear sense that it had an agenda. It was definitely doing something, and furthermore, had the sense that it did not, it didn't give a damn about any possible human need. In other words, if if its job that day had been go find a bunch of kids in a field, and, you know, pick them up in the air a thousand feet and then drop them and then write down what happens, it would have done it. Not necessarily to hurt us, but with absolutely no concern about whether it did. And since we couldn't move and everything, I didn't like that at all. Uh, I don't know how long we were held in that position, but I think only seconds or minutes and all of a sudden it let us go and all of us started running towards the house you know yelling our heads off and some of the parents who were inside having a party did get to the windows out back uh, in time to see this thing taking off and I heard them when we got to the house calling it a UFO you see 
Uh-oh, so that was your introduction. You're listening to the PowerCast. We're talking to Nancy Talbot, and she is the president of BLT Research Team Incorporated, and we'll be getting into more detail about that and their research into crop circles momentarily. Right now we're talking about the UFO experience she had when she was 13 or 14 years of old that really, really frightened. How did your um, friends respond to this? Did you guys like start talking about it immediately after it happened? Was this, uh, you said uh, this you were was, scared. It's a little peculiar, I guess. I was babysitting these kids, and they were in the ranges of probably eight, nine, ten years old. Younger than you, yeah. Much younger. I mean, we weren't socially, you know, we didn't hang out together. I was their babysitter. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And we were just playing ball out in this field as part of my babysitting. Well, the other kids were quite frightened, and everybody, when we got to the house, each person ran to their own mother. Now, I didn't have a mother there because my mother wasn't at the party, so I went to the people that owned, for whom I was babysitting and heard the adults you know, calling this thing a UFO as if they had some idea what it was. But when I asked for more information about UFOs, they just sort of clammed up. And all I knew at that point was that there was something called UFOs, which they seemed to think we had had an encounter with, but I had no more information about were they living like elephants, you know, some sort of unusual <laughs> animal that I'd never encountered, or, or what. And when I got home finally, I, asked, I told my parents about it, and their reaction was, that, you know, it's crazy. You know, of course, you know, yeah. they, they knew about UFOs, but the idea that I could have had an encounter was apparently ridiculous, and they, re- they wouldn't even talk about it. And because of that, I then pursued things. NICAP had just started when this all happened, and I found out about it, and started, joined up, and started to read stuff, because I just wanted to find out more about whatever that was. Yeah, try to understand your experience. Yeah, I went on for a couple of years uh, reading everything I get my hands on. Mm-hmm. Did find a few people who had had similar encounters, but realized at some point that nobody really knew anything. I'd read you know books, I'd read all these reports, and we weren't learning anything. And I guess I just got bored because you know I you can read so many reports and and you're not getting anywhere. And I just went on then with my studies. I was going to a boarding school at that time and then to, to college, and didn't really think anything. I don't think I ever forgot it. Uh, it's quite clear in my head even now, but I didn't see how to pursue it. And the rest of my adult life, I was not involved at all in uh, anything like this until I discovered the crop circle phenomenon in 1990. So at that point, you felt, standing in that first crop circle, that UFOs had nothing to do this with this. Why did you specifically feel that way? Because the sort of atmosphere, I don't know, there's a, an energy thing that you perceive often in crop circles. Mm-hmm. And it's very gentle. It's quiet. It's, uh, I mean, I've been in many of them where I've had this feeling of very peaceful, very relaxed, very laid back, uh, not at all threatening. I have felt what has seemed to me to be a presence, in fact, the very first one I ever went into in England, and in several others from time to time. But it, it would never felt aggressive. It never felt controlling in any way. Just more laid back. And frankly, I think I assumed that UFOs, since the only thing I really, any directing information I had was my own experience, had a, a totally different purpose or agenda than whatever. I mean, the crop circles were sitting in fields. They occurred very quickly, apparently. They were there then for as long as the field 
was uncut. People could go in and look. It just it felt totally different. In other words, it was just you know completely an idiosyncratic personal response of my own that no, whatever that other occasion had been, the, the UFO thing, it wasn't like the crop circle thing at all. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. If you have a comment or question, send your messages to news at thepowercast.com. That's news at thepowercast.com. Visit our website at thepowercast.com and check out our message boards. Become an active participant. We welcome you and download past episodes of the show. Nancy Talbot, the president of BLT Research Team Incorporated, is here to talk about crop circles. David. Nancy, when you were studying these... Uh these plants inside of the crop circle. I think a lot of our listeners would just assume that these plants were pressed down. What did you find that would suggest that it wasn't just a mechanical pressing down? Well, they were, in the, in the first ones that I saw in England, they mm-hmm. were simply bent over and flattened fairly close to the ground and swirled in, I don't remember clockwise or counterclockwise, but in you know basically one or the other uh, directions. But by the time I, when I'd first gotten to England, I'd found out about a group of people who were already uh, looking at plants and had spent some time talking to them and was told about these elongated apical nodes. These are the top nodes on the plant. Wheat and oats and oats and barley, even corn, for instance, have these knuckle-like protuberances along the stem every foot and a half or so, and those are called nodes. And these people had already begun to realize that in crop circle plants, the flattened plants, they were finding that that top node was, in fact, elongated longer than the control nodes in the unflattened crop in the rest of the field. And the work, a great deal of work had not been done at that point, but it was one of the physical differences that, they, that was being observed, and data was beginning to be collected. So I looked for that when I went into this first one in East Field, and immediately I saw it. I grabbed a handful of control crop as I went in and then simply compared that top node on the control plants to the top nodes in the flattened plants. And then it just happened in that particular case that the elongation was significant enough so you could actually see it visually. There is some degree of difference in normal crop, even though most of it now that's grown for food is hybridized and therefore grows very much the same. There is some node difference, uh, you know, a tiny little bit here and there, but when you see a significant difference, I mean, if the nodes are half again as long as in the controls, you know, that adds up when you do enough samples. You do several thousand samples, you can run a statistical program and figure out do you in fact have a significant change or don't you? It turns out now, after 15 years of doing this work, 
that most crop circles that we end up thinking are genuine crop circles do in fact have these elongated apical nodes. Is this completely regardless of the type of crop that it actually is? I know that there's wheat, there's canola, there's corn. This is completely independent of the specific type of crop. Well, it depends on whether the crop has nodes. Canola doesn't. Okay. Uh, the wheat, the oats, the barley, corn. Now we do a lot in just good old, you know, field corn. This is ten foot tall field corn, and all of those plants have the nodes. Uh, there were a number of other tests that, that Levengood, the biophysicist, eventually developed, based both on what we discovered in the samples and some ideas he had on his own to test other kinds of plants, grasses, for instance, where they don't have these nodes to see you know, what kind of changes there. He didn't look just at nodes, but in, in wheat and oats, barley, things of that sort, the nodes are one of the, it's the best documented and one of the most easily uh, discernible changes, physical changes, if it's present. As it turns out now, after a great deal of work, there are a number of other abnormalities, some of which are visible, one of which, the others of which are not. You have to do laboratory work to determine it, so in the field, you would not be able to tell the difference. But these elongated nodes, if they're present, you know, you're very careful in looking, you can usually tell uh, whether they're significantly altered inside or not. Now, you talk about visible changes and then invisible changes. I assume you mean things at a molecular level, at a crystalline level? No, at the at simply the uh, cellular level. The, uh, the other visible physical change in plants, which has now been evaluated thoroughly enough to be to be able to talk about it are these expulsion cavities and these are holes that are blown out at the nodes farther down the plant stem when we first started this work in about 1992 is when we really actively started uh, sampling in Europe and elsewhere uh, we started to notice that in some of the crop circles you would find not only the elongated apical node but you would find an expulsion cavity a hole blown out at the second node beneath the seed head. Uh, in those early years, we would find it only occasionally and always in the second node. In more recent years, we have discovered that, I don't know whether it's changed, I think it has actually, but these expulsion cavities now are sometimes seen all the way down the plant stem. All of the nodes all the way to the ground in some cases are affected. And in this field corn, where we do get crop circles in field corn, particularly here in North America and in Canada, find as many as seven, eight, nine, ten nodes blown all the way down the plant stem. Now, those two changes, which are the most visible, the easiest to discern in the field, are both thought to be uh, caused by very intense and very brief sort of nanosecond bursts of intense heat. Uh, microwaves is the heat that is proposed because it's the only energy that we know of that can selectively affect the moisture inside the plant's stem and not burn the stem itself. Uh, what we think is going on is that this moisture, the, all the nutrients are carried to the seed head because of the moisture, you know, carries it up through the stem. Mm -hmm. That moisture is collected primarily at the nodes, so there's more of it at the nodes, and it's heated very quickly and very intensely and turns to steam. When it's farther up the uh, stem, when it's near the top, those fibers up there are fairly elastic. They stretch, 
And so as the steam tries to seep out, it simply stretches this, this, these node tissues. Hence and the elongation. Exactly, leaving them elongated once it's gone. Farther down the plant stem, as the steam builds up, those fibers do not stretch. And so it builds up and builds up, and just like a microwave yep. so in your oven, mm -hmm. it, it blows a hole. Well, that's now, a we, question people have voiced about crop circles. The modern perception from the skeptic's point of view, is that hoaxers are generating these crop circles. So have we had this kind of equipment to generate these microwaves over the past 30, 40, 50 years that crop circles have been around? How in the world do microwaves disperse immediately? Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, immediately in the air. You'd have to have some sort of a gizmo that would focus them directly on the nodes of thousands of individual plants and very in, precisely. It has in, a to do in a very precise configuration yeah. on a large scale. We're talking all over the world, and every country that I've been to, and there's like 15 of them now, I see exactly the same effect, and we're talking 25 years. I mean, this, I think, is a little ridiculous. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. If you want to get in touch with us, you can send your email or a voice file of up to 90 seconds to news at thepowercast.com, news at thepowercast.com. Visit our website, thepowercast.com, and check out our message boards, become a participant, and download episodes of previous shows. We're talking to Nancy Talbert. She's president of BLT Research Team Incorporated. The topic is crop circles. So how far back can you go in crop circle research? When were they first discovered? It's, there's some debate still about this, but we have at this point historical evidence, meaning documentation in books and in writings as far back as the 1500s some very reliable uh, illustrations in the 1600s in England where early scientists there, one in particular, I think his name was Robert Plott, who had an estate, I gather, in southern England, the Wiltshire area, which is, of course, where the crop circles primarily happen now. Uh, and he noticed these things in his fields back in the 1600s and did draw several of them in his report about them and his drawings indicate spirals, uh, squares within circles, circles and rings, many of the designs that we see now fairly regularly. Uh, and he was commenting on, in his particular case, he was a geologist or a beginner, he was studying soils, and he observed dryness, an unusual dryness, inside the, uh, the soils inside the crop circles, and wrote this all up back in 1668, I think it was, 
and it was published in Nature, the preeminent science journal you know, of, that, of that time and this one. Hmm. So there is a fairly good indicator when you combine that sort of information with anecdotal reports from farmers, modern farmers, whose families have been on the land for generations, and they remember their grandfathers or great-grandfathers uh, reporting having found these things occasionally in their crop also. So whether it's a recurring phenomenon, perhaps every 50 years or every 100 years or something like that, or several hundred years, or, or not, is very hard to say because there isn't any consistent documentation until about the 19, mid-70s when they started to be noticed again in southern England from you know, time to time, occasionally. And then by the end of the 1980s, they were occurring much more frequently in southern England, and they were much more elaborate. They were becoming much fancier, um, longer, bigger, uh, more parts to them, you know, and therefore getting more people to pay attention to them. It turns out when we go into other countries now that many of the farmers in these other countries also report having seen them from time to time during the same period, but not having anybody to report it to, not knowing exactly who to tell. Now, in doing the research on these things, Nancy, what are you finding in terms of the characteristics of the soil? We've talked about the actual stalks. What about the soil itself? Well, let me, I think we ought to finish the plants. There's a little bit more information about the plants. It's terribly okay. interesting. Okay. Another of the discoveries by Levengood, this would be in the mid-1990s, I guess, was that there were considerable changes in germination and growth capability Hmm. When you germinate seeds taken from crop circle plants and compared that growth to the seeds taken from the controls, what he discovered was that when, this is a generalization now, it's not always true, but generally speaking, when crop circles occur in immature plants where the seed is not fully developed, in other words, it's still forming, when crop circles happen then, which is May and June generally, the seed never forms completely normally. It never becomes as large, uh, and they weigh less than the controls. When you germinate those seeds at the end of the season, what you find is that they do not produce viable seedlings. The seedlings are pathetic looking. They, they, don't, they don't grow as tall as they should, as quickly. They don't develop the same root structure. By and large, the plant has been sterilized. You know, the seeds simply will not reproduce properly. They won't grow a new plant, in other words. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. However, when the crop circles form later on in the season, when that seed is fully developed at the time the thing happens, those seeds again will be dehydrated. They'll weigh less, and they look like they're not going to germinate. But by and large, they germinate at up to five times the rate of normal, Hmm. They grow five times as fast as the control seeds. They do it, they produce greater yield in the next generation of, of seeds, and they do all this without light or water for long periods of time. This is something we discovered quite by accident. Got to tell the farmers about this, I'll tell you. <laughs> exactly. Uh, when this was recognized, when this was discovered, it was clearly, we realized immediately that if, it, if you could get seeds to grow without light or water, or if you could get them to do so for a long period of time, countries that suffer droughts you know, might be able to get a, a decent crop. 
it, we really, there was a great deal of potential, we thought, for this result. Levengood, because of his background, was uh, convinced that that result, this increased growth and yield, was related to some very unusual electrical pulses. He eventually was able, with John Burke, to build, those are the, the B and the L and BLT, they were able to build a piece of equipment which delivered these very unusual electrical pulses to perfectly normal seed and got exactly the same result. Hmm. They eventually patented that finding and tried to sell it to the seed companies because uh, they had hoped, they, they thought it was a heck of a lot better way to get greater yield than with all of this engineering, this genetic engineering stuff, you know. But the seed companies, although they tested um, over and over and over again for 10 years, tested the results by having us treat the seeds, and then they would plant them and carry out their own tests, you know. And even though they got the same results, as did people in various seed companies all around the world, they never went for the technology itself. Now, uh, well, what that John seems Burke, odd. Well, Burke thinks that it's because they have invested so much money in this genetic uh, engineering uh, approach, and because the technology involved in building this equipment, the electrical pulse equipment, is very inexpensive and very simple. Hmm. That this was then a technology that they could not control. You see. And that even though the result produces somewhere between a 20 and a 35% increase in yield, and with certain seeds, not all, but with certain seeds, it shows a marked ability to withstand what they call plant stressors, lack of water, lack of sunlight, whatever. In many, many cases, the carrots, for instance, you could see it over and over again, hmm. and in cotton and in tomatoes, and in a number of other seeds that were tried. And even though they got all of these seed companies got the same results consistently, as did other academics who independently did studies, the technology was they never bought it. That seems and to happen too often in our world where invested, entrenched interests conspire to prevent new technologies from appearing. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. If you want to contact us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. And if you check our website at theparacast.com, you can download past episodes of the show from the very beginning, February of 2006, and also participate in our message boards. Nancy Talbert is with us. She is president of BLT Research Team Incorporated. And we're talking about crop circles. One thing, of course, that we're all curious about is not just the technology or the mechanism behind which these things are generated, but the shapes they take. And that's another story. So what, are they all similar shapes or what? No, and I don't think the shapes, although they intrigue people from our work, you cannot make any statement about the overall design having anything to do with the uh, actual results of the plant and soil work. We have found these changes in the plants that I just talked about in simple circles, in small circles, in large circles, in complex events, in long pathways in complex events. And we don't see it's not limited to any particular style or type. 
And we also need to point out that in many of the crop circles that have produced the most dramatic results have been what many of the British people would dismiss as being messy. They don't have this precise, pristine lay that many of the British ones do, and yet they show all these same changes. We also find these changes sometimes in completely randomly down crop, which up until now has always been called lodging uh, by the farmers and has thought to be uh, due to weather damage. Now, there are weather-damaged areas of lodging that occur every year. Those will not show these changes. But when you see randomly down crop in a field where there's a geometric event, crop circle, or near a field with uh, geometric crop circles, and you test it, you often find exactly the same physical changes that you would find in the crop circle itself. And so as far as we're concerned, it looks to us as if some of these randomly downed uh, incidents are in fact caused by exactly the same mechanism that causes the geometric you know, crop circles without producing a geometric end result. But how do those ratios play out? I, I, you look at the designs of these things, Nancy, and there definitely seems to be purpose to them. I, I, well, so I'm, I mean, some of them are man-made, and I'm sure there is a purpose. Right, sure, some of them are man-made, but some percentage aren't. Some percentage aren't, and... But if, in fact... I mean, one of the problems when you talk about designs, the major problem is until you know whether the formation you're looking at is man-made or right. not, there's no point in even looking at, at the geometric part of it. All right, it's sure. Made, what difference does it make? Well, absolutely, but let, let's and talk so, about the ones that you, aren't. But what you have to take into consideration is that large numbers of these very intricate things have not been tested. We don't know whether they're man-made or not. The testing is expensive. It's very time-consuming. It requires field workers who are willing to do quite a bit of work. If it's overseas, all these plants have we have to rent a barn. We have to dry all the plants down. Things have to be uh, correctly labeled. All sorts of diagrams have to be made. You know, it's a quite involved process, and it's expensive. Uh, we don't have a huge amount of money, and so we're limited. Uh, to the numbers of these things that we can actually test, and many of the, the the events which inspire people to consider an intelligence or a consciousness have not been tested. And so you have people simply going at it as if they were all genuine, when we know perfectly well, in England in particular, that they are not. And many of these intricate ones are, in fact, one very intricate one that I know excited the crop circle community enormously, we have eyewitnesses to it being man-made. Which one would that with, be? Uh, I'm curious. At, at, uh, where was it? Uh, near at Silbury okay. Hill. It's, uh, it was one near Silbury Hill at the end of the season in 2004, and it had sort of, they, they named it a Mayan glyph or something. Mm -hmm. uh, they perceived it as having Mayan, Mayan symbolism. That particular event, we do have three witnesses that I've spoken to at, at some length who did not know the thing appeared over two nights, as some of them do. They don't, all of them do not appear in, in their final form in one night, sometimes particularly in England, although it has helped, happened elsewhere. It's, they occur over two or three nights. In this particular case, it, it, it took two nights. 
Well, the people who found it on the first day had no idea that there were going to be more. And some of these people went into it that night in the hopes of getting these light ball photos, which, you know, the light balls are real. They do occur. And these people had gone in, one American and two Brits, simply, I think, with the idea that they might get some light ball photos. And while they were in the formation trying to get the light ball photos, here come the hoaxers tromping <laughs> up the, the field, you know, the tram lines, and immediately set about finishing it. And they were observed to finish one whole section before the three individuals who had been there to begin with left. Now, if the second part was man-made, I would assume that probably sure. the first part was also. Yeah. Yeah. And so there you have a, a very elaborate and thought-provoking example that the uh, cross-circle community have interpreted and gone on quite a bit about that where we know it was man-made. Now, that's wasting time and energy, I think. Sure. When you're you're busy trying to figure out what something means when you don't know whether it's real. I I would do the plan soil work first and then once you knew it was real, start looking for some meaning if that's what you wanted to do. But that's not how the people who who do assign meaning, they don't approach it that way. Well, one of the reasons that I really wanted to have you on the show, I said to Gene that I was really looking forward to this um, because I, for a long time, was very skeptical about this entire phenomenon. But I've been reading a book by um, a gentleman by the name of Freddie Silva, a book called Secrets in the Fields, which I'm finding to be absolutely fascinating. The book starts with the depiction of a crop circle being formed over about 45 minutes during daytime, right next to where Stonehenge is. And, it's, and it is a very complex one. That one, when it was tested, uh, was real. Okay. Was real so. Boy. All right, so we've got a real one that had a highly complex pattern, very significant in terms of its geometry. It happened in daylight hours, which I thought was incredibly compelling. So if we have one that you agree is real, that is highly geometrically complex, then this brings me back to the question, what, does, what do you think this means? This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. If you want to reach us, write to news at theparacast.com, news at theparacast.com. Check our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show or join our message boards. Nancy Talbot. 
the president of BLT Research Team, who is an expert in crop circles, joins us. And David asked her the deep question of the evening about crop circles. Nancy, so what's your answer? Well, first of all, I have to point out that nature produces design all the time. Nothing uncommon about design in natural processes. If you look at a snail shell, for instance, uh, what do you see? It's a very complex design. If you look at uh, a rose petal, I mean, a rose, you know, a rose itself. If you look at uh, snowflakes, nature produces design. It produces design rather than not. If you know anything about chaos theory, there's design even in chaos. Sure. So the fact that the formations are produced designs does not, to me, immediately indicate a deliberate conscious, you know, uh, interaction. It could mean that, but it doesn't necessarily. Uh, I mean, you don't, when you look at snowflakes, think that God is talking to you particularly, or ETs or anybody else. Nor do you think that when you look at seashells or the head of a sunflower seed, for in, sunflower, for instance. Mm -hmm. If you look at any of these things, you'll see very intricate design. And there are many crop circles which mimic those designs exactly. And very precisely. So immediately, I don't think you need to assume that there is a consciousness involved in the cross circle situation. However, that being said, and with the idea that there are natural forces at work, perhaps we ought to talk about the natural forces for a few minutes sure. before we get to this next part. Uh, and this would, in would involve also bringing in some of the early soil work which, in which we discovered magnetic spheres, tiny, uh, these are you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 micron diameter spheres of pure iron that were magnetized in the cross circles themselves. Generally speaking, those spheres are distributed around the perimeter of circular parts of the cross circle, because not all cross circles are circular. Mm -hmm. uh, occasionally, they are deposited linearly with the least number in the center of the cross circle with increasing amounts, a linearly increasing amount, as you reach the perimeter. Now, those particles indicate the presence of a strong magnetic field during the formation of the cross circle itself. And when you find them uh, gathered around or clustered around the edges of circles, it further suggests centrifugal force. You know, that whatever this was, this magnetic field was rotating. Now, Levengood, who is the only person so far to have published in the scientific literature, not only the data, but his concept of what may be going on, his proposal is that an atmospheric plasma, uh, a descending atmospheric plasma, which is spiraling around the Earth's magnetic field lines as it gets closer and closer to the surface of the Earth, is responsible for making crop circles. Plasmas, when they spiral, emit microwaves. They also are known to be associated with very unusual electrical pulses and strong magnetic fields, all of which fits the actual data that Levengood was able to derive in the laboratory over 15 years of work. A plasma that the audience would be familiar with, a plasma discharge, that they would recognize a very high-energy plasma is a lightning strike. Sure, sure. Uh, a much more gentle uh, or lower-energy plasma discharge are the northern lights. Levengood proposes that there is some 
uh, unknown plasma system in between the high energy, you know, discharge of a lightning bolt and the lower energy discharge of the northern lights that is simply not yet known by science and that this is uh, causing these crop circles to appear. Many of the design elements which are regularly seen in crop circles all over the world are entirely possible with that theory if in fact such a plasma exists. Nobody can prove that yet. No one's done the sort of laboratory work that would perhaps prove that idea. But it's the only one on the table, the only official position that has been presented in, in the published scientific literature so far. However, a study was done. We did a study following some of Levengood's early work when I was attempting to get other scientists involved because I realized that even though Levengood was publishing, and Levengood and Burke published the magnetic material paper, and Levengood and I published another paper talking about these energies, that these published papers were not moving the study forward fast enough. And I started to realize that we were going to need many different scientists with different disciplines dealing with this whole subject before the community, the science community, might begin to take all this seriously. It's uh, very slow going. And toward that end, I was able to raise uh, from Lawrence Rockefeller funding to pay for an X-ray diffraction study of clay minerals in the crop circle soils. That study, it was astounding, and it's caused a lot of problems on one level. We did find at the 95% level of confidence, which is what science requires, that there was a change in the crystalline structure of very specific clay minerals in crop circle soils. In other words, the crystalline structure was more ordered, it was more crystalline than the control soils. Uh, however, according to this man was head of the Department of Earth Sciences at Dartmouth and a world authority in clay mineralogy, literally the guy that writes the textbooks, he uh, informed us after he had made sure that the work had been done correctly uh, he redid the work himself to make sure because he couldn't believe it. And then he redid the statistical work also because he knows of only two possible causes for this change in the crystalline structure. And they are geologic pressure, and by that is meant literally the pressure of mountains pressing down on sediments over hundreds or thousands of years. That's mm -hmm. one cause. The other cause is extremely intense heat over long periods of time. Now, in this particular, in the study crop circle, which was up in Canada, in Edmonton in the late 1990s, in that particular formation, Levengood did find elongated apical nodes. He did find expulsion cavities. He did find the magnetic material in the soils. And at exactly the same sampling locations, because each sample of plants had a soil sample taken around it, at exactly those same sampling locations, we found this change in the crystalline structure of the clays. The problem is that the kind of heat or pressure that it would have taken to cause the change in the clays would have either incinerated or completely obliterated the plants. Hmm. And obviously, the plants were there. Still intact. Entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney. If you want to contact us, send your messages. They can be written or short audio segments of up to 90 seconds to news at thepowercast.com, news at thepowercast.com. Check our website at thepowercast.com for past episodes of the show or to join in on our enthusiastic message boards. Nancy Talbert joins us for another segment on this episode of the PowerCast. She is the president of BLT Research Team Incorporated, and we're talking about crop circles. And David, I think you and I agree that it's time now to kind of focus towards the end of this conversation some more conclusions. I don't want to keep beating like on this. I'd like to something here and then go towards a, more of a conclusion. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, the, the most important thing here in this particular uh, study was to realize that the plant changes, all of the plant changes and soil changes which we had been discovering over the first 10, 11, 12 years of work were found in this particular formation. In addition, we found this change in the crystalline structure in the clays. Those two results cannot happen in the same location with any known energy source. Dr. Reynolds, the uh, man who reviewed the study, and then redid the parts of it himself to make sure, the, the mineralogist who was in charge of this, said that in his opinion, based on the data, simply on the data, this man knew nothing about crop circles, that he had to state that an energy unknown to science had to be involved. There was no energy known to him that could selectively affect the plants in one fashion and the clays in another. So. This looks like it doesn't fit with the idea of a plasma vortex. It looks stranger than that, more yeah. unusual. In addition, there is something which has not been dealt with scientifically yet, and I hope will be eventually, and that is the evidence that indicates some sort of a conscious presence, not just some of the designs, which do perhaps indicate that, but many personal involvements with now hundreds of field workers where events have occurred which none of us can understand in any light other than that there is some sort of a consciousness interacting with those of us who have been involved. I'll give you a very brief example. One of my field workers in England, Dan Lobb, was working one summer for us and a formation occurred which was made up of squares and rectangles. I thought to myself that if there had ever been a man-made formation, it had to be this one. But I wasn't sure. You never make an assumption like that. So I asked him to go into it and just look for the visible signs. Did he see node elongation? Did he see expulsion cavities? These are the two things we know to look for. Well, he went in and called me up when he got back, and my God, he had seen an incredibly clear node elongation, in other words, 100% node elongation, and he had seen expulsion mm -hmm. cavities throughout. I couldn't believe it. I had no money that year to get over, and so I asked him to please get some sampling done because I wanted to look at the plants and the soils, and he went ahead and did that. Then, out of the blue, I got some money and was able to go, and I arrived about a week later, got a crew together, along, including Dan and several other people. And we went into this formation and spent two days. I mean, we sampled the, you know, just the dickens out of it. Many, I can't remember, hundreds of samples and hundreds of controls. 
At the end of that second day, uh, I didn't have any money. I had to get back. I had 50 bucks left, and I gave it to Dan to take uh, uh, <laughs> one of these plane rides because he wanted to see just you know the, the crop circles throughout that season. And he went up the next morning. We left that field at 10.30 at night. Uh, he was back over that field in the helicopter at around 8.30 the next morning, and he said he almost fell out of the plane. Uh, he looked down, and there was the formation, you know, which we'd been working on. But in every single location where he alone had taken the original samples and controls, and I had no idea where that had been. We hadn't even discussed it. In every single one of those locations, there was a new circle. Now, it had not; those little circles had not been there at 10.30 the night before when we left the formation. They occurred sometime between 10.30 that night and 8.30 the next morning, and they occurred only where Dan, who was the only human being on the face of the earth, who knew where he had taken those samples, they were in each one of those locations. Now, that's the kind of event that goes on fairly regularly if you're out in the fields working on these formations. And what else, how else can you explain that? I mean, I don't know how to explain that. And intelligence. What kind of intelligence? Anything at all related to UFOs, or are we dealing totally with a different kind of force at work here? Is it an Earth intelligence? There's a lot of evidence that's starting to accumulate, and I'd love to do another one where we talk about all of that evidence. Sure. Uh, At the moment, I think we have to entertain the idea of perhaps interdimensional consciousness or reality. Uh, there's the whole ET idea. There's the divine. There, you know, there are. There's the the collective unconscious, subconscious. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what it is, and that's why I'm hoping so much that this consciousness research emerges, because what we see over and over again are events like this one. I mean, I could tell you a dozen of them uh, easily. About similar to these things that Dan is uh, that Dan experienced, and to me, I don't know how in the world would a new circle occur at, at that places that he only he knew. You know, I had no idea. Neither did any one of the rest of us yeah. have any idea where he'd taken those original samples and controls, and that they were all marked. Now, yeah, that doesn't seem like entropy. Yeah, that that's not entropy or chaos. Doesn't seem to be. And it is also, of course, what is terribly interesting about the crop circles. When you have this sort of situation occur over and over again, each one apparently tailored to a particular individual. Dan is an extremely skeptical guy. He lives in England. He knows how many of them are man-made. And he, he thinks, I mean, he approaches the whole thing very skeptically. He said he literally almost fell out of the plane. He could not believe his eyes. Thank God he photographed it, so we have the evidence. But uh, how to explain it, all I can think is that somebody was watching him when he took those original samples and controls and for some reason decided to mark them so he could see it. And you wonder if there's a bit of a sense of humor, a sardonic sense of humor involved here. I think that often. (laughs) I think that often that whatever it is could be playing games as well as not necessarily malicious games, fooling with us, you know. Having a fun at art expense saying, look what I could do, and uh-huh. all those silly earth people don't know what's going on. We're just going to have more and more fun with them. That's it. Wow. There are, there are enough incidents which suggest that. I think you have to approach all this. I mean, do your work thoroughly and carefully, but stay loose on interpretation. 
Well, there's one case in particular. I don't know that we have enough time to talk about it, but I'm just going to throw it on the table, Nancy. One of the ones that's really caught my, my interest and I'm just fascinated with is a series of crop circles in Chilbolton next to this radio telescope. What do you know about that? What do you think about that in our closing moments here? I know that in that so-called Arecibo reply, which is, I think, the one you're talking about. Correct. That's right. There were no visible node elongations. Now, that doesn't mean there wouldn't have been had it been sampled. It was not sampled. But okay. on the ground, my field workers could see no visible node elongation. They found no expulsion cavities. And the pathways that were often described as being very narrow were, in fact, wide enough for a human foot. Hmm. Uh, without it being sampled properly, I don't know. What I do think, however, is that if there is a sophisticated debunking effort going on, which I sometimes think there may be, and I don't mean these kids at ground make them, I mean a much more sophisticated effort. If such a thing is going on, then doing something of that sort is exactly what I would expect. Uh-oh. That raises another topic of discussion we'll have to pursue again. Where could one get more information about your research? Uh, our website is the best place. place. It's www.bltresearch.com. Thank you so much, Nancy Talbert, the president of BLT Research, for giving us this initial education about crop circles, and we hope to talk to you a lot more in the future. Thanks again. Thanks for having me. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. Hey, we're glad to have you back on the Paracast. And by the way, if you missed any part of the show, go to our site, techbroadcasting.com, where you can download all the episodes from the very beginning, free of charge. No surcharges, no memberships, nothing like that. Coming up next on the show, we're going to be exploring Martian mysteries, whether such phenomena as the face on Mars truly represents evidence of extraterrestrial artifacts. We'll be talking to Matt Tonys, author of The Martian Apocalypse. It's all coming up next on the Paracast. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car. A sleep timer. An alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support 
this show by visiting our site, theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com. Right now, click on the C-Crane Sponsor button to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free C-Crane catalog. Place your order today. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. So, Mac, we've heard from time to time over the past, I guess, decade or so about the alleged face on Mars. And certainly we've heard the commentaries from Richard Hoagland on that subject. So in your opinion, is there a face on Mars or is this just a lot of sand? There's a face on Mars. Whether or not the face is artificial is the question that we should be asking. So, yeah, there's definitely a face. I think it uh, it holds up a facial resemblance over the years, uh, different lighting, different resolution, massive and the ESA have both tried little interesting tricks and filters, you know, to make it look less face-like. I think I think they're protesting a little bit too much, frankly. But uh, I do think that there is a facial feature on, on the Martian surface that has some anomalous characteristics that deserves to be looked at scientifically. We need to we need to get rid of this uh, this prejudice that it can't be, therefore it isn't. And just look at it and address it like any other uh, enigma and, you know, just dispassionately and, and try to keep beliefs and emotions out of it and and uh, maybe they'll help get us to the bottom of this but i no i think it, i think it's a face other people that i talked to have seen it and even in the new pictures see a face you know we're, we're told by the press it's not a face it's uh that it's not a face at all it's uh and the fact remains it looks like a face that does not mean that it's artificial you know but i think it's suggestive of possibly an interesting origin for this that we should investigate. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Mac Tonys. He's author, amongst other things, of After the Martian Apocalypse, subtitled Extraterrestrial Artifacts in the Case for Mars Exploration. And we're going to pursue that in more detail. Do you think, though, that some of the positive comments about the alleged face on Mars have just gone a little too far in what they might be? Oh, sure. Yeah, sir. It, it, with anything, you know, 99% of anything is is, is bad stuff. Mm. Theodore Sturgeon's Law, a science fiction writer, asked about why 99% of science fiction is horrible. He said something like, well, it's because 99% of everything is horrible. And the same thing with ufology and the same thing with the face on Mars. You just got uh, the lunatic fringe and uh, related fringes make uh, claims that are unsubstantiated or, or simply false or simply a little bit a little bit starry-eyed or a little too optimistic. And uh, I think I think that we're still dealing with more mystery than, than uh, in fact. We still haven't even been to Mars yet. Uh, so to start making proclamations about you know exactly what we're seeing, exactly you know why it was built and who built it and stuff, I don't. Well, we're not at that point yet. I don't think. Maybe someone is, but if they are, I'm not aware of how they got there. Uh-huh. Uh, so I think that's all the more reason to go to Mars. I, it, it should serve. We should go to Mars. Face face on Mars or not, Mars is worth visiting. Uh, it's it's a wondrous planet. It's full of full of all kinds of discoveries. But the face is just one little added incentive, I think. And uh, no, I don't think we. I don't think we know about it. At least I. At least I don't. I can't speak for everyone. Some people think they do, and that's fine. But that doesn't mean I have to agree with. I'm looking here online at um, some high res visual information about this uh, this structure. 
structure or this uh, this feature on Mars. And I have to tell you, I mean, I've I've looked at a number of images, and of course, in trying to do any kind of analysis, you you want the most amount of information possible, the highest resolution of information, especially trying to discern visual elements of this nature. And and I have to tell you, I'm looking at this uh, April 2001 view. Yeah. And I have to play devil's advocate here for a moment. I look at this, I don't see a face at all. I, I see what looks like a natural structure. It doesn't look artificial in any way. And to me, I have to squint and try to see a face here. I mean, is this, yeah, I mean, well, the thing is, though, if, if, and this is something that we've talked about a lot on the show in terms of people, for example, in, in ufology, people trying to look at things in the sky and trying to see a UFO, uh, trying to yeah. impose their leaking, belief. Weaking aircraft line is actually something else. Right. Well, so, I mean, I, I'm going to play skeptic here for a moment. I'm going to say, Mac, I'm looking at this. I don't see a face here. What If you look at this high-res data, it, it really does become difficult, I think, to to superimpose this idea of a face on this. So what are you kind of using here to, to bolster well, this think, argument? I think it's helpful to keep in mind is that archaeology here on Earth, when we use remote sensing to look, mm -hmm. at, to look at ancient sites, seldom do they look like anything other than natural formations from the surface. The closer you get, you start getting blemishes in the landscape, uh, natural features, erosion features. Whatever the face is, it's made. it appears to be made out of uh, rock, if it is indeed made, and I'll concede that maybe it's not, but... Why should it appear perfectly, you know, a perfect vestige of a, of, a, of a face after all these years? I mean, even look at the Sphinx, you know, it's missing its nose. We've got, uh, you look at Indian mounds in, in North America, you've got some that are degraded to the point, you know, they're covered with grass. They're, they've suffered mass wasting and all kinds of other things. Mm -hmm. uh, I think instead of looking at one picture, I think uh, I think the face on Mars needs to be looked at holistically with the, the history of, of the facial resemblances and the images where it doesn't look so face-like over a period since 1976 when it was first imaged. And when you do that, you start getting this picture of this, of this landform that, uh, yeah, it looks more, has more of an iconic face-like resemblance from, from in the lower res pictures. One argument that's been made, and it's kind of elliptical, but it has, I think there's a point a point to be made there, is that uh, when you're looking at a lower-res image, uh, you're, you're kind of erasing all the all the geological blemishes that we're seeing. You have to keep in mind that if this is artificial, then it's possibly 500,000 years old or older. In that case, we, we wouldn't expect to see something uh, perfect. I think that the, that the right-hand side of the face on the image that you're looking at has, has collapsed somewhat. And uh, some people will, will uh, automatically criticize the argument as, as rationalizing the way why well, it doesn't look like a perfect face. I, for one, never expected it to look like a perfect face. Uh, you can tell from the Viking image, uh, Viking frame 70A13, actually, that you can, there's a continuation of the face, but you can tell that the mouth doesn't quite continue in, in the same way. You can see that there's some, some slumping or something. So I was never expecting a perfect bilaterally symmetric face. But nevertheless, even what we have has an alarming degree of bi symmetry, even if the face wasn't there, even if it was just the perimeter mesa, it would be really, it would be quite strange and out of place in the Sidonia region. So there are a number of arguments and uh, lots lots and lots of, of, of computer work as far as the elevation. Like, for example, when you look at the face from an elevated perspective, you see that there's a pileup of prob what's probably dust on the right side, obscuring uh, what's underneath. One thing, if you look at the, at the image you're looking at, um, the left side has kind of a pitted porous appearance, and the right side is smoother. Right. And exactly, and that's because of the wind 
scraping off the dust that's been accumulated there and depositing on the other side, on the leeward side of the face. So you get this cushion, and that's been confirmed by elevation models, obscuring that and, and possibly even protecting what's underneath. So yeah, you've got you've got uh, uh, some distortion of, of sorts, but nothing that that's out of line with uh, archaeological models. When you look at the potential of ground penetrating radar and stuff to to get clear image, then that's then it starts looking like the, the case for the face might and I have some teeth after all. <laughs> that's almost a pun. You know, yeah, I know. I didn't, I didn't intend that. But some people thought the face had teeth in all uh -huh. those pictures, and it, uh, that was one of the initial things they were able to, uh, able to determine that the face did not indeed have teeth. But, uh, but I think the argument does. Well, let's look at this. Is it possible also that maybe we are seeing this face trying to take images that we don't understand and maybe our brains are fooling us a little bit? Do you think there's a possibility of that? Yeah, there's a possibility of that. There's a, there's, there's a, I, forget, I forget the term, the medical term, but there is, yeah, seems, there's a tendency to see faces sometimes. That's been challenged uh, only very recently, uh, the neurological predisposition to see faces where nothing is there. And uh, I think this is when we start needing to call and other, other sets of data. For example, Mark Carlotto is an image processor, and he did an interesting experiment using um, a topological uh, algorithm uh, that tests for non-fractality in, in a natural surface. And uh, what you do, you just it's a satellite image, and the computer program, which is impartial, it doesn't know what uh, it is not looking for specific structures that we know that we know are artificial. It simply tests for uh, the fractality or the relative fractality of the surface formations. And it's been used in a military context looking for like you know, camouflage military sites, installations in Iraq and things like that. And uh, if something deviates from the natural uh, fractal nature of the landscape, then it will then it will show up in this in this algorithm, even if you try to disguise it. And uh, when you do this, when you apply this method to the Cydonia region, the face lights up virtually as as an anomaly. Uh, so it's it's a qualitative anomaly, uh, regardless of the face, the facial resemblance or the lack thereof, depending on who you speak to. Uh, so there's something there's something morphologically unusual about the face from a strictly computational perspective, mm -hmm. uh, and that to me suggests that it augments the the, um, the the albeit subjective impression of seeing a humanoid face when you look at the various satellite photos. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietany. If you want to contact us, send your messages to news at thepowercast.com. When you visit our website at thepowercast.com, you can check out our message boards or download past episodes of the show. Mac Tonys joins us. He's the author, amongst other things, of After the Martian Apocalypse, Extraterrestrial Artifacts in the Case for Mars Exploration. And this is not a self-published book. It's published by a major publishing house, which is PowerView Pocket Books, which is what that's part of Simon and Schuster. Yes, it mm -hmm. is. So let's talk about other particular mysteries. Obviously, with the face, 
on Mars. We're not going to really know, I guess, until we have a lot more close exploration. But that's another question that occurs to me, and that is, okay, we've had these probes that we send to Mars, and now we have the probes on the surface. Why aren't they going there to find out whether this is a face or not? It's funny that you mentioned that, because actually when, when they were landing the Viking landers, there were two of them, uh, and uh, that was, Cydonia was the, was the original site that they were going to land uh, the Viking lander, and it's a test for life, because the Cydonia region is thought to have uh, a higher chance of water ice. In which case, you, that's a, an argument that you might have more bacteria in the soil. And uh, they didn't. They kind of they kind of uh, scratched the Cydonia region because of uh, they thought it was too bumpy. They thought that there was a risk that the rover, excuse me, the lander might crash, and uh, they ended up landing it elsewhere. So we haven't done it yet. We've come close. Uh, the uh, little test Sojourner rover. Uh, which is kind of a kind of a prelude to the uh, to the NERs that are there now. Came close, but, but we had been to land up there. It's just a matter of uh, of priorities. You have to remember that JPL, uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, that operates the rovers, is uh, they're they're geologists. They don't really have any interest in, in life sciences. In fact, it would be detrimental to to them if, to include a bunch of life science packages. You hear about the the, the search for life on Mars. That's used constantly as a as a very repetitively as a justification for the Mars exploration program. But none of the rovers that have been sent, except for the Beagle two, and that was European. That was um, UK's probe. None of the rovers that you that you invited mentioned have had any experiments on board for the detection of a life, uh, microscopic or otherwise. So uh, you start to wonder why exactly we're going to search for life. Uh, it's because it's, the missions are geological in nature. We're looking at rocks and trying to date the planet and looking for circumstantial evidence. Uh, if life were discovered, uh, GPL would likely lose a degree of uh, control over the Mars program. Uh, there would be added incentive to explore Mars in person, I think, and we'd start to see re interest uh, from like manned space flight centers, like Johnson Space Flight Center. Uh, so you've got this kind of schizophrenic bureaucracy uh, in charge of the in charge of different programs. Different so we have politics in oh, here. Very political. Well, yeah, I mean, and it's telling us maybe that. we shouldn't be looking for life on Mars because we'll lose that program, and therefore we just want to look for rocks. And that's if you, exactly. I think that's precisely what's going on right oh, now. We're not, we're not looking for. We're looking. We're looking at uh, some very interesting geology, and there's nothing wrong with that. But my my complaint is that why can't we look for life too? Because I think we'd find it. Mm. Well, that's an interesting point. Past well, the, the life, life, or the remnants of life. I mean, I think there's, I think that there's a real, a high, a highly uh, significant chance that we'd find extent life, life that's there now in the soil. If you go down about three meters into the permafrost, you've got the conditions that uh, there's no reason why life couldn't be there, and I think we'd find it. I think it would be there. But that would be microbes mostly, right? Microbes, yeah. I don't. Uh, right. uh, there might be, might be even larger forms. Some, some photos from space suggest large life forms of some kind. And uh, they very well might be, but uh, we're not going to know until we go there, and uh, or until, at the very least, until we put some proper um, experiments on board our rovers. Hmm. And hmm. so far, there's just this interesting reluctance to do that, and, and the mainstream scientific community isn't complaining as much as it should. Keep hearing about the search for life on Mars, and uh, yet we don't really search for it. Hmm. Part of the issue is that if we find life on Mars, then what? I, I, I've come to believe that a lot of the um, space program at this point is really interested in trying to determine the the availability of resources, perhaps on other planets. Maybe you know, life is of one level of usefulness to the human race. 
uh, if we found really widely, what's the word I need here, exploitable sources of new forms of energy, that might hmm. be something that would drive exploration a little right, more. Right, like of course, helium three on the moon or uh, right, water exactly. where you can make propellant. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a motive too. You don't hear a lot of much. You don't hear as much about it openly because right. I think they tend to be lie the, the military imperative behind the Moon Mars Initiative. But uh, yeah, we're definitely looking for that stuff. Well, the other problem would be that if you did find life on Mars of any intelligent level at all, you'd have <laughs> a big can of worms to deal with. Life on Mars now, I think I think we're looking at archaeological. Sure, uh, right. Sorry, that's right. But if you did, you'd be in a really a big pickle here. It'd be a lot of political considerations to deal with. It's not microbes. It was anything that showed some kind of intelligence, then you would be in one serious situation. If you want to exploit the mineral content, you'd suddenly have to deal with somebody else. Uh, and and it's politically, you wouldn't want that to happen. No, I agree with, with the conspiracy theorists who maintain that you know, NASA already knows the truth, you know, whatever that is about the, the monuments on Mars. If, if they are indeed monuments, I always have to qualify myself with that. But, uh, but yeah, if, if, we, if we find archaeological sites on Mars, and I think there are a number of sites, and it's not just the face on Mars, there's lots of stuff, and one of the reasons I think the face is compelling is because it's so close to all this other stuff that's very interesting on other levels, non-subjective levels. Tell us about this other stuff. Yes. Uh, one of the features that I think is endlessly interesting, because it tends to look more and more artificial the closer we look, is the what's become known as the DNA pyramid. It's a big, big feature, much bigger than the face, and it's uh, very clear faceted and um, it looks like a big uh, it's, I'm trying to think of a comparison I used to think it looked like the Chrysler emblem um, but new shots have revealed that it has this uh, facet that we didn't really see before because it's covered under sand and you can see this uh, sharp edge just this poking through the sand it's just it's really it's really interesting and uh, for it to be carved by wind uh, it's possible but you'd have to have this this uh, relentless faceting effect from five different directions at once uh, which is some people have argued that would simply that would simply uh, abrade the, the original landmass into a cone. You know, you wouldn't have this, this, these facets like this. It's an interesting formation. We have other. Uh, we have this the region known as the city, which uh, I mean, mo it looks mostly naturally, uh, but there are small-scale anomalies known as the uh, the bright mounds. And they were the subject of, a, of an interesting study by um, Drs. Horace Crater and, and Stanley McDaniel, uh, theoretical physicist. And what they did was uh, look at these things. We noticed these in the, in the Viking images. They were bright, bright uh, dots. We couldn't discern anything of their structure. They were just their placement was interesting. So they selected a few of them, and this was before we had any high-resolution high-resolution images of the actual features themselves. We just had the, you know, the, where they were on the on the landscape, and they got those and realized that it painted this very interesting uh, mathematical signature on on, on the surface, very unique and, and very redundant. That's probably the key element there. Is it was very redundant, very unlikely mm -hmm. to occur naturally. And uh, so they, they, you know, they, they tested it. They put, they ran simulations and had computers generate random placements and uh, didn't get anything close. And, and the conclusions are, in the odds of this occurring naturally, the specific configuration are billions to one. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. 
To receive your free issue of Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Hey, let me stop here and tell our listeners you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. If you need to reach us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. When you visit our website, theparacast.com, you can check out our message forums, download past episodes. You can do that, by the way, also at Apple's iTunes site. On our episode this week, we're talking to Mac Tony's writer, science fiction writer, critic, columnist, fact writer. He maintains the Cydonian imperative and we'll ask about that in a moment and we're talking in fair part here about after the martian apocalypse a book subtitled extraterrestrial artifacts in the case for mars exploration now we've migrated past the face on mars and we're looking over other things so do you think here and this may be the entire crux of it all that there is evidence of some past civilization that existed on mars tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of years ago yes i do i think there's evidence for that i don't think there's proof of that yet but i think there is strong evidence to to uh well certainly more than enough to to make us want to look closely so yeah i definitely qualify myself as a as a believer quote unquote in the sense that i think that there is a mystery worth following up on what that mystery ultimately represents, I have no way of knowing right now. Now, how about what we know about the formation of our solar system and the history of the planets? At this point, one looks at the surface of Mars, and it's sort of hard to think that any kind of humanoid life certainly could live there now. It's a very harsh environment. Does your understanding of the history of the planet of Mars support the idea of, for example, a humanoid-like life form Actually, living yeah, on the surface? Does. Yeah. It does. Mars was once uh, pretty warm and watery, and uh, it lost that for reasons that are still under contention, you know, by a number of uh, you know planetary geologists. And you know, maybe Mars lost its atmosphere to space gradually because you know it didn't have enough gravity. Maybe uh, maybe life-giving oxygen was sucked into the rocks, you know, in, in a chemical process and bonded with uh, with the surface. Uh, there are a number of scenarios, or maybe these things happened in tandem. They're not usually exclusive by any means, but uh, I think that uh, Mars probably, it was probably more cataclysmic than, than either of those scenarios. I think uh, if you look at the surface, you find the Hellas Planitia Basin on one side, and it's just this vast impact basin. Mm. You know, something hit Mars there, and it would certainly be enough to kill Earth, and uh, I think there's a good case to be made for that impact event killing Mars, in which case Mars' demise is a, as a as an abode of life, to paraphrase Percival Lowell, was pretty pretty sudden, pretty catastrophic. You look at the other side of the planet, and you have the Tharsis bulge, a big uplift of giant shield volcanoes. Uh, Olympus Mons is the biggest shield volcano in the solar system. So uh, you look, it's basically like uh, if you draw a line through the planet, there's a very clear cause and effect present. You know, you get this impact, and you get this shockwave going through the planet. And, and a bulge on the other side of the, of the planet. planet. Yeah, it just erupts in, into these volcanoes and displaces lots and lots of uh, of landmass. 
so that would that would suggest kind of an apocalyptic uh, end to Mars. But uh, Mars is a living planet. It's not to say that things aren't still living there now, but uh, but certainly not. I I don't think there's any evidence of intelligent activity there now. And right. Neither right. To most people, it's a pretty pretty fringy notion. I don't think there's any evidence for that, unless you unless you count the Soviets' uh, experience, experiences with the uh, with the moons. <laughs> you have this you have this interesting enigma with the the Soviet Phobos probe that went to went to fire a little laser at uh, at one of Mars's moons, Phobos, and and uh, right when it was about to do that, it photographed an an object. Some say it's the shadow of Phobos on the surface, which which seems dubious, but uh, there's one of those little, little mysteries that uh, we might eventually solve, we might not. There's also been a bit of a history of failure of trying to get probes onto the surface of Mars. There have been very sad episodes along those lines. Are, are you one of the people who believes that perhaps some of these uh, probes have been interfered with? Well, that's kind of the, that's kind of the argument you get uh, when you talk about the Phobos probe from the Soviets. Right. I know there have been others, though, as well. Right, yeah. Uh, I, I, don't, I think a lot of it is... Uh, Incompetence, for example, the Mars Polar Lander. That was the one that. Uh, no, I'm sorry. It was the Mars. I think it was the Mars Climate Orbiter. I get, I get confused. Was this a decimal? Was flinging them at Mars, and they were all <laughs> failing. There was there was problems with the measurements. Uh, one team was using empirical measurements, and one one was using metric. Yeah. And obviously, that doesn't lead to a successful landing. If you look at the steps involved in sending in sending the payload to Mars, it's just mind-boggling. So much attention to detail, and it, it, it doesn't strike me as too absurd that we're you know we're losing these things, and you know there's a big difference between orbiting a planet and landing on it. Landing on it, there's yeah. A whole, there's a whole other order of magnitude the things that can go wrong, and uh, I think we've met with some bad luck. The Beagle Two, for example, that that the, that the English sent, we uh, that had life detection experiments, and we think we found it on the surface now with high resolution camera. We think we've seen it found the landing site, and uh, with the new with the new Mars reconnaissance orbiter. We should be able to discern it easily. It has like uh, 14 centimeter resolution or something like that, which is incredible. And I've Amazing. Seen some, I've seen some new images. Speaking of failed Mars probes, the Mars Global Surveyor, which took the picture of the base on Mars you mentioned earlier, uh, has just failed. Uh, it's been the last few days we've been trying to get a signal out of it, and it appears to be toast. But it's been orbiting since '97, and uh, that's pretty good. It's that's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's always occurred to me that just the fact that we never lost uh, a crew on the moon, um, you know, I guess with Apollo 13, things were touch and go, but the fact that every human we landed on the moon, we got off in one piece, it's yeah. really, it's, it's an amazing accomplishment if you stop and look at, and especially, you know, Gene and I are really interested in computer technology, and when you look at the computing power on the Apollo spacecraft, I mean, <laughs> any, any... I mean, any game machine today is is far beyond the computers that landed the Apollo craft on the moon. I mean, it's just it's really, it is amazing. It is you amazing. Stop looking at it. And they did everything by hand. They'd write everything down and read the numbers back to mission control and uh, and cross-verify. And if well, even one of those is wrong, you know, they, they could be in big, big trouble. Yeah. Mm. We're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Never know what's going to happen next. 
hey, you're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney. And if you want to contact us, send your messages to news at thepowercast.com. That's news at thepowercast.com. And when you get to our website, thepowercast.com, you can check out past episodes of the show and also participate in our message boards. Mac Tonys joins us, genial gentleman who's author of After the Martian Apocalypse, Extraterrestrial Artifacts and the Case for Mars Exploration. Now, looking at the two moons of Mars, long, long ago, there was speculation, actually by one of the UFO authors, the late Major Donald Kehoe, that the two moons might be artificial, or at least one of them might. So what does current research show? First of all, Carl Sagan also was an early advocate of that, uh, of that hypothesis, that perhaps uh, the moons of Mars are artificial. So it's not just the UFO guys, you know, that, that thought that. There's good reason to think that they might be. Okay. They have interesting orbits. And, uh, you know, they, they probably aren't, but I wouldn't rule it out yet. Uh, for one thing, when we finally saw the moons and took close-up pictures, you know, they appear like rocks, potatoes, and uh, that was that was deemed evidence, well, they're not artificial after all. And, and I've always been a little bit confused by that. You know, if they're artificial, what do you expect them to look like? If you read the, the space, post-space colonization literature by Gerard Keel and Neil, they're talking about getting the best, a very efficient way of, of traveling through space is to get an asteroid and essentially hollow it out. And you get yourself a very good radiation shield, and then uh, use mass launchers and uh, fling yourself to wherever you want to go. It's going to be, you know, relatively slow going, but you'll eventually get there in safety. From that perspective, you can't exactly rule out the possibility that Phobos and Deimos are uh, artificial or then modified. Are they? I don't know. It's another one of those interesting enigmas. And as far as the celestial mechanics go, as far as their orbits, I can't tell you exactly. I forget what the deal is. But they are, they're all, I think they're the only objects in the solar system that orbit the parent body faster than the parent body rotates. Uh, so if you were on the Martian surface and looked up, you'd see the things going by twice a day. But Phobos is an interesting object. It has some interesting characteristics, that, uh, including this large crater, uh, Stickney. Uh, which, if it had been any larger, the, the fumbles would have been disintegrated by it. And uh, instead, it's, it's intact, which is, you know, a close call. That's going to happen statistically. It's, it's probably inevitable. Another interesting feature on Phobos, you have these grooves um, that are parallel, radiating out from the large crater. And they look like, you know, tracks or roads or something. I don't think that that's what they are, at least in our usual day uh, use of the term roads. But uh, they're inter- interesting features, and uh, I don't think they've been adequately explained. Uh, tidal fractures or something like that. Uh, could they be evidence of mining operations, perhaps, maybe? Uh, could they be? One idea that I, that I play with in the book is that maybe they are mass launchers, and that's a very simple device uh, that uh, flings payloads, basically buckets of, uh, of indigenous matter from the from the object you're trying to move into space uh, it's kind of like cannibalizing the, the the object and to use it to use its own masses as a propellant that might you know, i think that's interesting idea that we should that we should play with hmm. we don't really know what when we're dealing with an object that large you know what do we expect an artificial object to be like do we expect it to be like a giant version of mirror or something like that's that's quite unlikely i think that we if we're looking for uh, arcs or something like that orbiting the planet. They probably likely take the form of, of uh, 
at least on what first blush would appear to be asteroids, you know, captured moons or something like that. It won't be a Death Star. You're yeah, reading my mind. Death yeah, Star. yeah, exactly. That's, where that's people very, expect very a perfectly but, symmetrical object, right, right, right. And especially after all these, after all this time, and there are interesting structures on Phobos. Uh, a guy named Ephraim Palermo uh, has made has been pretty dutifully cataloging these things. There are these cone-shaped objects sticking out. And uh, if you look at Phobos, it's very rounded. It's abraded by, by time. It's been out there a long time getting smacked by asteroids. It's the last place you'd ex or meteors, rather. It's the last place you'd expect large, spiky things to be. And uh, they're actually quite prevalent. They cast these long, long shadows on the surface. And uh, what exactly these, these, things, these things are is uh, unknown. Of course, the, the problem when you talk about this and you talk about these structures and these formations we see on not only other planets, but certainly it looks like in our solar system a lot of the interesting stuff is happening on moons. Like you know, some of the moons of Jupiter are just absolutely fascinating to us. But well, they're also very part geologically active. Oh, absolutely. I, yeah. The, the problem is, though, when we talk about any kind of scientific analysis of these formations and structures, the only reference we've really had is studying geology on Earth, and sure. with with the, the you know with the erosion and the effects of our atmosphere, I don't think we've had the opportunity to really look at formations that take a lot of you know. If you look at the surface of the of the Earth. Nothing really lasts a long time because the erosion is so absolutely intense that, you know, if we look a million years back in the history of this planet, I mean, there's nothing on the surface. It, kind of like looking at the moon. And melted or absolutely. happened to it, right. Right. I mean, we look at the moon and we see that there's this incredible visual history of impacts on That's Earth. You, it's Exactly. But like on Earth, if you look at the surface of the planet, you really have to, no pun intended, dig down. And then you see things like impact craters that are now filled with water and, you know, where, where if, if we didn't have the ability to look from a high point, we would we'd never see these things. Exactly. That's remote, remote sensing has revealed all these things that we had no idea. And that goes for archaeology as well. We're finding archaeological sites and uh, mounds from mound building civilizations that uh, from the surface we just assumed were hills. You know what happens, of course, here, we all know, as egotistical little as we are, that if something happened to our civilization, say, in the next even 100 or 200 years, half a million years from now, even 10, 20,000 years from now, there would be no evidence that we existed. And it would be a residue of anomaly, and, uh, and the people who would cite it would probably get uh, jeered at. <laughs> on whatever planet they're living on, even this one. So we could have had civilizations on this world far in advance of where we are today, space-faring civilizations. But there's no evidence of it. Possibly some, yeah. some catastrophe might have caused them to leave our planet hundreds of thousands of years ago, and so maybe we came back, or maybe the populace survived some of it, and they built new civilizations, but what seeded them, we don't know. And so we look at Mars, well, Mars now looks to be a somewhat dead planet, but we don't know what might have existed there hundreds of thousands of years ago. Yeah, and we know that Mars is on its plate tectonics now. Uh, it's all one locked up uh, surface feature, uh, so it would that would tend to preserve stru any structure artificial structures on there uh, for our inspection. But of course, you've also got a very thin atmosphere.
atmosphere, and that allows lots of meteors and, and to, to batter the landscape, as you, could, as you can easily see by looking at, the, at looking at any globe of Mars. So it's, it's an interesting, interesting riddle, uh, as, as long as as far as how long something could last there. Hmm. Uh, if it, and it's, it's worth mentioning that one of the hypotheses, and this was Richard Hoagland's idea originally, uh, that uh, some of the larger pyramid structures, like the B&M pyramid that I mentioned, if these are artificial structures, then uh, they might be arcologies, or enclosed environments. And uh, that argues for a, for an interpretation where we're looking at a planet that's very ecologically decimated, and the population is, is, is trying to insulate itself from the outside environment because of harsh conditions, such as lack of, lack of a breathable atmosphere. And that, that's consistent with what we know about Mars now and in the past. And uh, it's actually a pretty good, pretty good idea. I think some people, well, the pyramid on Mars, they immediately start thinking of, uh, oh, the pyramids in Egypt or something. And uh, I, I don't think that's a very uh, tenable analog. The size, size alone, it, we're looking at the structure. If it isn't data structure, we're looking at something that's orders of magnitude bigger and uh, probably serves a different purpose, you know. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. This is the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. And if you have to get in touch with us for any reason, send your messages to news at thepowercast.com or check out our website, thepowercast.com, and you can listen to past episodes of the show or visit our message boards. We're talking to Mac Tonys, author of After the Martian Apocalypse, Extraterrestrial Artifacts in the Case for Mars Exploration. And David, you were champing at the bit with a question. There's a site on the web, um, anomalousimages.com, and they've got pretty good repository of a lot of these, uh, a lot of these pictures. And this DM pyramid, they actually show a, a, a shot of the surface where you can see the, the face on one side and then this DM pyramid structure. And it's about twice the size of the face. Yeah. It, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty huge. And it's also, it, as, as, uh, as Mac pointed out, it's, it's, a, it's a five-sided pyramid. Now, is there any similar type of pyramid structure on planet Earth? Because most of the pyramid structures that I know of are, are four-sided. Right. That's a good question. And I don't. Off the top of my head, I don't know. I don't. Think I don't so. think I've ever. I don't be, think so. Yeah. I don't. Yeah, none that I know of. It seems uniquely uh, Martian. Whatever that means. Whatever that may mean. What is uniquely Martian? There are other Martian? five-sided pyramids on Mars. The DNN is not the only one. If you go north just a bit, there is what's known as the Main City Pyramid, and it is also a five-sided pyramid. Uh, there's another very small one about the size of the one of the pyramids in Giza. It's also five-sided. It's also in Sidonia. It's also within miles of the face. And it's, it's and that happens. That's one of those mounds I mentioned uh, when they did 
did a statistical study of these of the distribution of these bright features that we first saw in the Viking pictures. Uh, it turns out that when you look at these structures in high resolution, uh, they're actually quite suggestive of uh, intelligently designed structures. They look they certainly they, if we saw one on Earth. I think there would be any question that archaeologists' uh, interest would be aroused. But but since it's on Mars, you know we we don't ha we don't have Martian archaeologists yet. And so we don't look, hmm. but uh, it's 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 interesting. But we but in essence, we have three five-sided pyramids on Mars, and they're all in the direct vicinity of the face, and at least one of them uh, shares uh, some critical alignments with other landforms. So we're looking at a complex. It's not just the face, and debunkers like to seize on just the face, you know, and uh, exclude everything else because everything else is admittedly it's a little bit slippery to get a grasp on unless unless you take time to learn about it. And you know, if you're a, a knee-jerk debunker, you're unlikely to spend a lot of time trying to actually learn about it because your job is to debunk, not to investigate. We don't have forever on the show, and I wondered if we could spend a little time on lunar mysteries. Speaking of Mr. Hoagland, he had some report coming up. Uh, a few weeks ago about some artifact supposedly found on the moon that looked yeah. like the face of a certain robotic creature in no. the Star Wars movies. What's that all about? Uh, it's a rock. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to push that to its logical conclusion, but uh, tell us more. Uh, well, it, it's, I don't want to sound too smug because I have some pretty weird ideas too, but this one just doesn't work. It's a rock that the Apollo astronauts took on the surface of the moon, and uh, and it's, it's it's not a giant formation like the face on Mars. It's a you know it's something you could pick up and take back to Earth. You know, conceive. It's this fuzzy picture of a, of a, of a rock in a, in a crater, I believe, and uh, they've subjected it to some interesting filters that seem to introduce some color that's not actually there, in my opinion, and. Uh, mm -hmm. Although I'm sure that that would be contested. It has a passing superficial similarity to a head insofar as it has eye sockets. Now, if you looked at any picture of the Martian surface, the lunar surface, you can find all kinds of rocks that have, you know, pits. You know, they're rocks. That's, they have stuff like this. That's not to say there's some inter there aren't interesting rocks on, on other planetary surfaces, but in my opinion, this is not one of them. And, uh, yeah, they compare it to C-3PO and uh, data from Star Trek. And uh, it's, it's a pretty weak argument, and it goes nowhere, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Are there any mysteries on the moon, though, that might yeah. show evidence of extraterrestrial origin? Yeah, yeah, definitely. The moon has some, the Blair Cuspids were, were, were discovered right off the bat, uh, large steeple-like formations that, uh, you know, again, like kind of like us talking about the little cones on Phobos. Mm -hmm. when, you have a, when you have an airless body in space, you don't expect to find, you know, sharp jutting things like this, because uh, things are worn down by the constant hail of, you know, just meteoric sleet, basically, and, uh, and leveled by larger impacts. But you've got, and again, these are arranged in, a, in kind, of, kind of a complex that uh, just kind of reinforces the idea that this is some sort of, I don't know, lunar Stonehenge or something. And uh, there are other features, other features of uh, objects suspended above the lunar surface that might be connected in some way. And uh, Hoagland has, has uh, addressed some of these in a much more intelligent way uh, than he than he fared with the, uh, the little face in the, in the, on, the, on the lunar surface. When you say suspended objects, can you be more specific about that? Well, there's one, and, and Hoagland would actually be the one to talk to about this. It's, it's a neat, it's it's called the castle, and it's this interesting little geometric, very, very geometric. It's it's comprised of little uh, interlacing. It almost looks like a snowflake, 
and it's, it was taken, there are two pictures of it, so it's not, we know it's not a camera defect, and it's actually above the lunar surface, and it's in the midst of some, actually some pretty weird terrain, and it looks like perhaps it could be suspended, not, not in the sense it's hovering or, uh, or something, but actually suspended on like uh, maybe like a filament or something above, above the uh, landscape. And it's, it's, it's very weird, and the, the photographs are admittedly fuzzy, but it's certainly, I think, one of those things that's worth looking at. I, I, I certainly want to know what it is. Hmm. We have some weird object that's uh, you know, suspended over the lunar surface, and it, it looks intelligently arranged, uh, then that deserves an explanation. And I don't, think we, I don't think we have that yet. This raises a larger think. question, Mac, and that is all these mysteries we're talking about, Mars, the moon, does it yeah. indicate the presence today of possible extraterrestrial visitors, maybe the ones that might be coming to our world? What do you think? Well, I mean, it's open to speculation, but uh, as far as the UFO phenomenon goes, I think that is certainly evidence of some sort of intelligence interacting with us. Whether that is extraterrestrial or not, I don't know. Uh, I kind of lean towards other theories, uh, aside from the extraterrestrial hypothesis, which is where you have aliens from other planets visiting us. But nevertheless, that that's, that's remains in contention. That could very well be what some UFOs are. Obviously, not all UFOs are that. UFOs simply means under the flying object, which tends to get overlooked. But yeah, when you look at the UFOs, that, that uh, the real UFOs, the ones that we're trying to get to, once you once you weed out all the uh, noise, uh, you've got a very interesting phenomenon that, that could very well represent space explorers, for like like a better term, it's a rather awkward term, I think, but uh, visitors from elsewhere, put it that way. And once you accept the notion that we could be being visited by some sort of extraterrestrial intelligence, then it becomes much more difficult to just automatically right off the notion that um, some, of the, some of the features we're seeing on other planetary surfaces uh, have nothing to do with that. It kind of, uh, it doesn't mean that they do. I mean, just because we have, uh, let's, let's say that we have been visited in the last 40 years or so by, a, by an irrefutable extraterrestrial spacecraft, that doesn't mean that it has anything to do with the face on Mars. Once again, assuming the face on Mars is artificial. It could have nothing to do. It could be no causal relationship at all. Uh, then again, maybe there is. Maybe at one time Mars was called colonized and uh, for a brief period maybe we're looking at the remains of a, of a base maybe some sort of automated base at that so yeah it's one of those questions that again I can't answer but uh, I can't rule it out and it's one of those areas that I really like to I like to think about because it's uh, such a pretentious little springboard for for uh, for future inquiries. Well, you, you raised one other springboard here I wanted to jump on, and that is other possibilities in addition to extraterrestrial visitors. What else might at least some UFOs be? Well, some UFOs might be, uh, sometimes I take, I kind of take a cue from uh, like Carl Jung and, uh, and Jacques Vallée. Jacques Vallée introduced this very interesting idea about UFOs being a psychosocial control system, kind of a thermostat. That, that kind of appeals to our sense of mythology and kind of insinuates itself into our belief systems. And if that's the case, then it's it's a little more di difficult to reconcile with, um, you know, nuts and bolts visitors from space, you know, aliens in spacesuits. Uh, for one thing, you see alien, quote-unquote, alien visitors on Earth doing things that we might not expect them to do if they're truly from outer space. Uh, a lot of UFO events kind of have the flavor of the 
staged production, like they want to be seen, but not too much. In fact, there's, there's a, a kind of a famous abduction case. A police officer in Nebraska named uh, Herbert Shermer was uh, abducted by these small uh, people, not the archetypal greys, but they were kind of close. And they actually told him, uh, "We want you to believe in us, but not too much." <laughs> and that's kind of that kind of captures the essence of Bohe's argument that you've got this intelligence that uh, is is playing with us, for what, but for whose end and for whose ultimate benefit we don't really know. Well, that that's the interdimensional trickster then. You've got yes, creatures exactly. that that feed off of emotional energy, and well, that it not basically feeding off emotional energy. But maybe they have, maybe they have some sort of stake in our belief in them. Maybe they need our belief in order to exist, in order to pass through our reality, or something like that. Or it could be, or it could be uh, some sort of manifestation of the psyche. Maybe it's some sort of projected hallucination. This is the Paracast. With your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietti, you never know what's going to happen next. Let me just tell our listeners, you're in the Faracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. If you need to reach us, send your messages. They can be written or audio files of up to 90 seconds to news at theparacast.com, news at theparacast.com. At theparacast.com, you can find past episodes of the show and an active message board system. We're talking to Matt Tonys. He's the author of After the Martian Apocalypse, Extraterrestrial Artifacts in the Case for Mars Exploration, and very astute about UFOs and general mysteries, and we're covering some really widespread possibilities here. Not just extraterrestrial visitors, but some intrinsic relationship between the UFO phenomena and us. And then, of course, there's always a possibility, Mac, of secret weapons, right? Well, definitely. Yeah. I mean, secret weapons, do they exist? You bet. <laughs> I think that's a given. What form they take, I, you know, then they start giving us some interesting uh, controversies, but I think we can rest it. Rest assured that there are some uh, devastating devices that we don't know about. If we follow that, I mean, if we talk, we're talking about this, where we're talking about secrecy, we're talking about, all right, so there's some government knowledge that there are structures on Mars that, and we haven't even talked about the dark side of the moon stuff, which gets fairly fringy. Um, of course, it's not actually, it's not actually dark. It's just, we, it's, it gets just as much daylight as, as the side we see. So it's the far side, you know, but it's not. The far side of the moon. That's okay. a, that, um, it's a pet peeve of mine. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> the dark side of the moon. I, and the Pink Floyd is totally responsible for that. This is true, well, among other things. They are responsible for a number of things, including people hating walls, which I've never understood, <laughs> and pigs flying over walls, which uh, I'm one of the few, well, I, I'm probably one of the few people ever have on the show who attended one of the wall concerts way back when. But um, this is not a show about rock and roll. So let's say there's this, there's this knowledge, and let's just play this game for a moment, that our government has knowledge that these things exist. Why keep them secret? What's your well, thought about that? It depends on your definition of our government. Our it, secret it, government. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if someone in, within the government does know about some sort of alien presence mm -hmm. or something, and I, I'm not going to rule it out, it wouldn't be the entire government. It's, it's very easy to point the finger at the government. In this case, no, it would be it would be a selected group. An right. Government operatives. Government yes. operatives, right, like, okay. like MJ-12 or something, right. you know, which I don't believe exists as, as I think the documents are, are fake. But uh, that does not rule out the possibility of, of a working group of some kind, if the Roswell crash or whatever was, was an actual alien vehicle. Mm -hmm. And again, I can't rule that out either. Yeah, if there's a group like that, then uh, it would stand to reason that they'd have some long-term 
goals as far as uh, monitoring the dissemination of information. They would probably have some sort of a link with JPL because uh, right now there are only there are eyes and ears as far as outer space is concerned, and they might find out something interesting. I think they would play an influential behind-the-scenes role. And since it's behind the scenes, you can speculate endlessly, and that's why the subject. That's one of the reasons that the subject is so usually uh, interesting and so uh, popular on late-night radio. You know, we don't we don't know how they're doing. So you can you can get away with anything. You can accuse them of anything. Yeah. You know, we don't even know if they exist. But if they did, I think it's a fair bet that they do. Yeah, as a contingency plan, if nothing else, where where, where can you start? I mean, they're gonna have they're gonna have their fingers in lots of pies. Well, that's the the, the point is that it we're at a point where you look at this information and it, and it becomes very difficult to try to build a foundation of understanding because one or two things go out of place in the foundation and everything you build on top of it kind of comes shattering down to the ground and that's right. Yeah, it it, it, just, it ruins everything. Everything we know is wrong. <laughs> If that is true, on some critical level. Well, it just becomes so difficult to come to any understanding of truth in that, besides the fact that there's so much we don't know, the entire field has been marginalized to the point that, you know, well, I mean, I'm sure people who might listen to this interview say, well, okay, so here they are interviewing a science fiction author. How is he qualified to talk about these topics? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I love hearing about the cottage industry, the face on Mars cottage industry. This is something that I've encountered, having written a book published by a major publisher. I, I don't know what they're talking about. I don't know what this cottage industry, I don't know who the other players are. The only one I can think of is Holland. And, uh, right. And he's written one book. Where is this face on Mars cottage industry? Where are these, where is this industry that, that I'm hearing about of people, of people making money off the face on Mars? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it has kind of an imprint on collective culture and pop culture and stuff, but I mean, as far as, a, as far as an abiding mystery that you hear about uh, on uh, specials on TV and stuff, it doesn't really get much there. It's not terribly popular. You know, I think it turns a lot of people off. That's it goes on the History Channel as one of those fringe shows. Oh, really? I guess, you know, they uh, do things like that every so often. The History Channel, the Discovery Channel, you know, those yeah. places. Well, I was I was invited to be a guest on a Discovery Channel documentary called Did Aliens Build the Pyramids, which I didn't know that was going to be the title of it. And uh, they flew me to Albuquerque, New Mexico, and uh, I got a nice little day's vacation out of it. And uh, they filmed me and didn't include me. Oh. Mm. Uh, left me out. They didn't tell me. And at the very last minute, they, they, they sent me the DVD, and I'm not even in it. But the people they did include, oh, my God, it was it, they, they butchered them. It was totally um, a roast, and I was very relieved that I wasn't in it. Well, you can just cut anything. One of the things I wish we had time to explore was the fact that our space program is just going nowhere, and we're down to about two minutes here. And I hate to ask you the question, but maybe as a summary, what should we be doing with our space program to get back to exploring all these mysteries? There are so many reasons to go to Mars that, it, that it, I certainly don't have time in two minutes to, to some, even summarize them, but that's what we should be doing. We should be gearing up to go to Mars, because in the process of going to Mars, we will also be developing the technologies to uh, colonize the moon and do a lot of other things. And once we get to Mars, uh, within 10 years, we'll be going to the moons of Jupiter in person. We, yeah, we need to be doing this. And not 20 years from now like they're planning. Well, if we started now, sure. There are so many reasons. The reasons to do it now outweigh the reasons not to do it. It would, it would uh, be a huge payback uh, in many ways, not to mention the fact that we'd be, at the very least, we'd be cementing tenuously 
possibly, but that we'd be we'd be ensuring some sort of all the whole the whole human legacy is not going to be wiped out in the next 50 years, you know, in case something bad happens. And to reach a point in history where something bad can happen on a, on a species wide level, yeah. And uh, we need to start thinking about protecting that. And uh, we've taken some steps. We're building a like kind of an archive, you know, in I believe Switzerland with uh, DNA samples and seeds from different crops around the world. We're entering a, entering a very dangerous time in our history, quite frankly. And uh, when I look at Mars and I look at the structures there, if, if you know, if they are structures, then I I, I get images of uh, you know a civilization that was in kind of similar dire straits, although albeit much worse than what we're going through right now. Hmm. But uh, the culture that was looking ahead and uh, and planning for the worst, perhaps. Well, let's hope that the worst doesn't happen to us. Thank you very much for joining us. Mac Tonys, the author of After the Martian Apocalypse, Extraterrestrial Artifacts in the Case for Mars Exploration. We appreciate your wisdom on the Paracast. Thank you very much for having me on the show. I appreciate it. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.